Let's go to our Lord in prayer. To hear them taught, to hear them proclaimed, Lord, let not such hearing be in vain. We pray, Father, that by the power of the blessed Spirit of God, we will hear your word effectually. We will hear it unto our sanctification. And for those still in their sins, may this be the day they hear it unto their salvation. But in all such things, Father, we trust in you that by your grace and power, may your word run unencumbered and be exalted in our very midst today. For the sake of Christ Jesus, and in his name we pray, amen. Well, I invite you to take the word of God and let's open up to the gospel according to John. And no, not chapter 8 yet. But chapter 3, chapter 3, John chapter 3. Going to begin reading at verse 22 and reading to verse 30. Verses 22 through 30 as we will be looking today at what I've entitled a living example of true humility. A living example of true humility. John chapter 3, starting at verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim... Because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from, a, from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has, who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore... This joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And so reads the infallible, inerrant, holy word of God. The grace of humility has always seemed to appear as a rare fruit in full bloom in the lives of God's people. For this reason, when this grace has gained strength and maturity in a Christian, it stands out in a most remarkable way as displaying a peculiar beauty that points so exclusively to the glory of God. In other words, 
A Christian who has been deeply sanctified in godly humility is a Christian whose life in words and deeds will always default in pointing others away from himself toward Jesus Christ. Now, in the history of the church, one of the most outstanding examples of such sanctified humility was in George Whitfield. And it is frankly extraordinary that Whitfield was so firmly and fully clothed with humility when one considers how this man was so profoundly used by God in his generation and was even given the praise for such service by a large host of his own contemporaries. They said of Whitfield that he was the most brilliant and popular preacher the modern world has ever known. Indeed, they even said he's the wonder of the age. In fact, what God did accomplish through Whitfield has been attested as virtually unparalleled to this day. This is why church historians have said that Whitfield was the greatest evangelist since the Apostle Paul. When he died in 1770 at the young age of 55, he had preached some 30,000 sermons over a small span of only 34 years, averaging some 60 hours a week in this labor, while making seven trips to America, 15 to Scotland, two to Ireland, one each to Gibraltar, Bermuda, and Holland, together with attempts to reach Canada and the West Indies, all for the purpose of making Christ known to as many people as he could reach. And one thing we have to appreciate about these evangelistic endeavors is that they were made before there was any such travel in trains, planes, or automobiles. In the 18th century, you traveled either by foot, on horseback, in a buggy, or on a boat. This fact alone makes Whitfield's outreach attainments, frankly, breathtaking. Now, whenever he did preach the gospel, especially in the open air, literally thousands thronged to hear him. In fact, it has been estimated that during his ministry, he preached to combined audiences of over 10 million and that four-fifths of America's colonists from Georgia to New Hampshire, heard him at least once, which could not be said of any other person. Among the crowds were not only the poor and uneducated, but prominent English aristocrats and American statesmen such as David Hume and Benjamin Franklin. This is why Whitfield was called the Grand Itinerant. And in America particularly, he was lauded as its first true cultural hero. But in addition to his mammoth preaching labors, he was also the catalyst for the great revival and spiritual awakening in both England and America. He was also the original founder of the Methodist movement. And under his leadership, schools and colleges were started, an orphanage in Savannah, Georgia was founded, and the passionate evangelistic zeal of the early Baptists of the South all owed their inspiration to George Whitfield. Now, with such an astounding record of both accomplishment and voluntary praise, what surpasses all of this as being the most remarkable feature about George Whitfield is that he was a man whose Christian life displayed humility with exceptional evidence over against all the remaining pride he had in his flesh. In other words, by God's grace alone, 
Whitfield was notably marked during his Christian life as a man of utter self-abasement and lowliness of mind in spite of the overwhelming popularity of his ministry. One of the most outstanding examples of this was an event that took place in 1748. An event that would forever shape the direction of the entire Methodist movement. Because of the ever-increasing strife and division that was occurring between those who followed Whitfield and those who followed John Wesley, Whitfield chose to yield his leadership of the movement to John Wesley all for the sake of bringing unity to these fellow Christians. This one act proved Whitfield's fervent commitment to the gospel of Christ as opposed to personal gain or prominence. But this decision was not without criticism from those who claimed their loyalty to Whitfield. They urged him to retain his position, increase his party, and continue the popularity of his name. They reminded him that if he failed to do so, he would not go down in history in the fame and glory that were rightfully his. Whitfield, however, needed no reminding as to the effect of the decision he made. He had well considered his action, and to the pleas of those people who were devoted so strongly to the preservation of his name, this is what he declared. He said in one letter, Let my name be forgotten. Let me be trodden under the feet of all men, if Jesus may thereby be glorified. And again, in another correspondence, he said, Let my name die everywhere. Let even my friends forget me, if by that means the cause of the blessed Jesus may be promoted. And the most well-known reply he made to his followers was this. Let the name of Whitfield perish, but Christ be glorified. My mission is to simply be the servant of all. Here then was the sweet and precious grace of humility in bold relief. A lowliness of mind and utter self-abasement all fixed to that end that Jesus Christ would be glorified. Well, with such a portrait of godly humility before us like this, I'm going to draw your attention to another like portrait found in the Word of God, specifically in John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. With a special emphasis this evening, excuse me, this morning, on verse 30 particularly. This passage of Scripture records the last testimony of John the Baptist concerning our Lord Jesus Christ. What is so significant, though, about this passage is how that to the very end of his ministry, John the Baptist remained faithful and consistent to his divine calling as a forerunner to the coming of Christ. That is to say, from the beginning of his ministry to the very end, John the Baptist never brought attention to himself, but was always laboring to point others to Christ. His preaching and service to others was always aimed to fix the affections of the people on following Christ rather than him. Hence, the most outstanding grace in John's character, even like that of Whitfield, was the grace of humility. Now, to really appreciate this as we enter our study of John 3, 22 through 30, we need to understand the historical background behind this passage. When we read the narrative in verses 22 through 24 that reports how John was also baptizing and people were coming and being baptized, 
At this stage in John's ministry, he had acquired a considerable amount of fame and popularity as the result of his preaching and baptizing. Luke tells us that crowds went out to be baptized by him. Matthew tells us that people came to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Moreover, it appears that the multitudes coming to hear John the Baptist included all segments of the population, Pharisees, Sadducees, tax collectors, soldiers, the rich, the poor. In fact, here in the Gospel of John, we are told that even an official, even an official delegation from Jerusalem showed up to inquire as to who John the Baptist really was. Such attention given to this one man who lived out in the desert wearing camel's hair, eating wild honey and locusts, merely pointed to the pervasive spread and rise of his popularity. Why, there was even a report circulating in Israel that John the Baptist was the prophet Elijah returning from glory. Needless to say, John the Baptist was the talk in everyone's conversation, and his ministry was the most sought-after event, if you will, in all of Israel. But here in the immediate context of John 3.22, we start to see that the fame of John the Baptist was beginning to be eclipsed by the popularity of another preacher, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. As Jesus was moving further in his itinerary through Jerusalem and beyond, the crowds around Jesus were expanding. In fact, many who had been following John the Baptist were now leaving him to follow after Christ. But what was the response of John the Baptist to this fast-fading fame he had as God's prophet? And for that matter, understand, he was the very last, the very last prophet under the Old Covenant. What was his response? Was he jealous and envious of Jesus? We're told here in verse 26 that some of his own disciples were quite jealous over the popularity Christ was gaining over John. They reported to John, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all, and the emphasis there is on all, all are going to him. The effect of this complaint was saying to John the Baptist, John, your star is sinking. What shall we do? Despite how sincere and warm-hearted their intentions may have been toward John, yet their complaint, think about this, their complaint was nothing more but an invitation for their mentor and leader to feel injured and neglected. These men cannot tolerate the idea that Jesus would dare detract from John's ministry. They were therefore calling on John to rebuke Jesus. They wanted John to silence the witness and ministry of the Christ. Can you imagine that? Yet what a lesson this is for us and how far jealousy and envy can blind us to the truth. They were so jealous for John's ministry not to be rivaled, to have no competition that they ended up fixing themselves in opposition to none other than the promised Messiah himself. Well, how did John the Baptist respond? Did he, did he give in to the envy of his disciples and thereby feed his own pride and ego and self-pity? What did he say to these men whose loyalty and devotion was so unwavering toward him? 
Well, to answer these questions takes us now into the primary exposition of our study, which focuses on verses 27 through 30, where we'll see that in John's response to his zealous disciples, he proved himself a living example of true humility. And we see this proof in four different ways. To begin with, we see true humility in John the Baptist because he recognized God's sovereignty over all things. He recognized God's sovereignty over all things. Look at me in verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. John's initial response to his disciples showed and proved a deep awareness and understanding that the present circumstances of his ministry fading was an act of God's sovereign will. In other words, what kept John the Baptist so humble was his own heartfelt recognition that God is sovereign over all things in life. Hence, to see his own ministry being eclipsed by the ministry of Jesus was not because John was it wasn't because Jesus was stealing people away from John, but rather it was because God was giving more people to Christ, his son, to be his followers. John the Baptist, therefore, understood what Job understood about God's sovereignty. What did Job say? The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. It's also this same truth spoken of in Daniel 2.21, that God changes times and seasons. And in Revelation 3 and verse 7, we hear this truth of God's sovereignty again, where we're told that God opens and no one shuts, and he shuts and no one opens. So when John the Baptist expressed to his disciples that a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven, he was declaring a sweet contentment, a sweet joy and peace with the changing circumstances because he knew in humble recognition that it was God who was changing the events of his ministry. Expressing this humility of John in recognition of God's sovereignty as a principle, J.C. Ryle wrote this, Success, promotion, and growth of influence are gifts which God keeps entirely in his own hands. If one faithful minister's popularity wanes, while another's popularity and influence over men's hearts increases, the thing is of God, and we must submit to his appointment. So then for John the Baptist, the sense of what he was saying here in verse 27 could be expressed like this. I cannot command continued success in my ministry. I can only receive what God gives me. If God thinks fit to give anyone more acceptance with men than myself, I cannot prevent it and have no right to complain. All success is of God. All that I have had at any period of my ministry has been received and none deserved. So in the light of this, let me ask you, do we have this kind of humility? Does our understanding and convictions about God's sovereignty move us to say from the heart, a person cannot receive even one thing, even one thing unless it is given him from heaven? Do we really believe this about God's sovereignty? And while we may believe it in theory, 
Do we believe it as a heartfelt conviction that shows itself in a spirit of humility? That is a spirit of humility which is expressed by contentment with one's circumstances in a joy over the advance of others that exceeds our own. Is this the kind of humility we have that we're showing? If we find ourselves in competition with what others have and trying to gain a superior position over others, whether, whether it's in knowledge, possessions, position, gifts, if this is what drives us in, in all we do and how we relate to others, then, beloved, we know nothing of this humility that recognizes God's sovereignty over all things. And if this humility is lacking, then here's a novel idea for you. Repent. Repent. We must repent because in, listen, because in place of the humility will only be pride and arrogance and envy and self-pity and jealousy, none of which we see here in John the Baptist. None of which. So, beloved, let's learn from John the Baptist. Let's imitate his faith here. Let's follow the example of this faithful prophet of God. If we're to be marked by true humility, then we will be free from jealous efforts at comparing ourselves with others or competing with others. Instead, we will affirm that all we have received has come to us by God's sovereign power and wisdom and love. This means that whether we advance or stop, succeed or fail, gain or lose over all such circumstances in every area of life, it is God who gives, it is God who takes away. John the Baptist believed this and proved it by the humility he showed in recognizing God's sovereignty over all things. But John the Baptist also demonstrated true humility by understanding who he was and what it was to which God called him. We see this in verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John the Baptist never suffered an identity crisis. Never. He was so self-aware of why he was in the world and what God had called him to do, that even in the face of his loyal followers tempting him to envy Jesus' rising popularity, John the Baptist simply reminded them again, because it wasn't the first time he had said this, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. By this admission which marked John's ministry from beginning to end, he showed even here that he was a man of true humility. And essentially what John understood about himself and his divine calling as an expression of humility is twofold. First, he recognized himself as being truly nothing in comparison to Christ. He recognized himself as being truly nothing in comparison to Christ. Although his own disciples thought he was something even to the point of being jealous and defensive over the swelling fame of Jesus. Yet, for John the Baptist, all he cared about was being a faithful servant of God and pointing everyone to Christ. John knew that he was merely the messenger 
but not the message. Thus he said repeatedly, I am not the Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 4 through 7, we see this same aspect of humility in Paul's rebuke of the Corinthians' divisive spirit over certain men of God. Some in the Corinthian church were claiming to follow Paul. Others were claiming to be followers of Apollos. And in the face of these factions, Paul accused the church of acting no differently than worldly men. So to give the Corinthian church a much-needed reality check, Paul reminded them of what he and Apollos really were. In verse 5 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul wrote, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. In other words, Paul and Apollos were nothing more than God's instruments of his saving message, but their salvation was owed to God alone. So in verses 6 and 7, Paul writes, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Paul the apostle, like John the Baptist, understood that he was truly nothing in relation to God and the spiritual growth of the church. The only thing Paul could do was deliver the gospel message, but bringing people to believe the gospel message was God's work alone. Therefore, God is the one to be exclusively praised, applauded, and made much over. Our role and responsibility in God's work is a gift from God. It's a calling, a stewardship. Hence, what we, what we do is all about Christ it is never about us. This is what John the Baptist always understood about himself. But on the other side of this truth, because John the Baptist understood that he was nothing in comparison to Christ, he was then able to recognize, listen to this, he was able to recognize the true significance and importance of what God had given him to do. How long, you might ask, how long did it take John the Baptist to come to this place in his own personal sanctification? When was he rightly prepared to enter upon the public scene and begin the mission God had called him to carry out? Well, only the Lord himself can answer those questions. But one thing we can be sure of, is that all those years John spent alone in the desert were years of God working in John the grace of humility, the grace of self-abasement and loneliness of mind, the grace which enabled John to be about one thing. From the moment he stepped into the public eye, he was about one thing. And that was pointing everyone to Christ, not himself. John never tired in his declaration to others, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John knew his place. He knew his purpose. He knew his limitations. And with it all, John the Baptist was content. He was satisfied. He had no ego. No pride of his own in what God had called him to do because it was never about him anyway. 
It was all about Christ. And John the Baptist was not Christ. He was just that voice crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord. John the Baptist clearly recognized the true significance and importance of what God had given him to do. But that recognition was only the result of a deep-seated humility in John that said, in effect, in comparison to the Christ, in comparison to this one whom I have been sent to prepare the way for, I am nothing. I am not even worthy to untie his sandal strap. I'm just a voice seeking to draw the attention of all people everywhere to follow after Christ. This was John's humility. He understood who he was and what God had called him to do. But in the third place, we see another demonstration of John's humility by the fact that he fixed his eyes exclusively on Christ. Look at me in verse 29. John says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John the Baptist had not one motion toward envy or jealousy over the increasing fame that Jesus was getting. Instead, it was quite the opposite. He rejoiced in the fame of Christ because this is where his focus was always fixed. John the Baptist was, by his own description, the friend of the bridegroom. It was not his wedding. Rather, his function was to simply serve the groom, who in this case was Jesus Christ. Now, the historical analogy of these words which John employs concerning the friend of the bridegroom, this is very significant to our present point under discussion. According to the marriage customs of the Jews, there were certain persons called the bridegroom's friends who were the means of communication between him and the bride before marriage. Their duty was simply to set forward and promote the bridegroom's interests and to remove all obstacles, as far as possible, to a speedy marital union of the parties. To accomplish this end and promote a thoroughly good understanding between the bride and bridegroom was their single and superior interest. If they saw the bridegroom's courtship prospering, and at last saw him received favorably and gladly by the bride, then their purpose was accomplished and their work was done. So then when John the Baptist refers to himself as the friend, the friend of the bridegroom, it is this aforementioned custom with all its procedures that he's got in mind. So then to his disciples, John clarifies that his singular role has always been to set forward and promote a good understanding between Christ and and his people. If he saw this work prospering, he was thankful and would rejoice that his own personal importance was fading. Hence, what John desired his disciples to know was that the rising popularity of Jesus, it was what he, John the Baptist, longed to see, despite the fact 
than it offended his own disciples. For John the Baptist, he had no greater joy than to hear the voice of Christ who is the bridegroom. That voice being listened to by believers who are the bride. This was the very thing for which he had been preaching and ministering. And so what does he testify to his disciples? He says, this joy of mine is complete. This joy is complete. John's joy was made full as he watched the crowds leave him for Jesus. And at the root of this joy was a humility, a humility which ever kept John's eyes fixed on Christ. Now, before we leave this point, let's just pause and ask ourselves, okay, a point of application. Are we like John the Baptist in relation to Jesus? Are we friends of the bridegroom? Are we friends of the bridegroom? Is our greatest passion and drive to promote the interests of Jesus Christ as more important than our own? Are we so fixed in our vision on Christ that to see our Lord getting more glory and more love and more devotion than we do by others is nothing but a cause of great joy rather than envy? Is that true of us? Is this how we really feel toward our Lord Jesus Christ? Is spreading the fame of Christ to others the ruling principle of our hearts than the increase of our, our own fame, however great or small? Are we the bridegroom's true friends? Now, before we answer these questions, let me place them for you in a certain context, okay? In our marriages and families, in the home, does the fame of Jesus rule our hearts in the home as opposed to increasing the fame of our families? As husbands and wives, do we go out of our way to point our spouse to a greater love and devotion to Christ than the love and devotion to ourselves? How important is it to us that, that our spouse loves Jesus, loves him more than they love us? And what about our children? Here's a biggie. In fact, this is a kicker. What about our children? Is their conversion to Christ the most important thing we promote to them in all we do as their parents? Would it bother you if your son or daughter gave themselves to Christ, loving him more than they love you? Would that bother you? Would that make you envious or jealous as a parent? Do not think these questions are far-fetched. They're not. Because I've seen Christian parents become jealous over this very thing. Christian parents. Beloved, if we are true friends of the bridegroom, then promoting his interests, his ways, his will, his plans, his purpose will be the supreme principle consuming our vision of life as a whole. In short, like John the Baptist, our eyes will be fixed exclusively on Christ. And by this, we will demonstrate true godly humility where we want nothing more for other people than to follow Jesus Christ. Our lives are about promoting Christ, not ourselves. 
Well, with that last statement, we move to our final point, which gives us the final mark of humility in John the Baptist. This faithful prophet of God demonstrated humility, listen, by wanting the glory of Christ to increase far above all things. Look at me in verse 30. And this is the key verse. This is the key verse. John 3.30. John says, He must increase, but I must decrease. He, the Lord Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. In this simple statement, we have one of the greatest personal expressions of what is at the heart of an authentic Christian life. Moreover, it is a statement that helps us understand with greater clarity what is at the center of true humility. Explaining this point, A.W. Pink wrote the following, The more I decrease, the more I delight in standing and hearing the voice of that blessed one who is altogether lovely. And so conversely, the more I stand and hear his voice, the more will he in increase before me, and the more shall I decrease. I cannot be occupied with two objects at one in the same time. To decrease is, we take it, to be less and less occupied with ourselves. The more I am occupied with Christ, the less shall I be occupied with myself. So here was John the Baptist, clothed with the grace of godly humility, expressed in the face of his jealous disciples, by saying with utter quiet contentment, Jesus must become greater I must become less. John the Baptist had one single preoccupation. His affections, his interests, were all centered on Christ rather than himself. Period. But to elaborate more on what John was expressing by these words in verse 30, one commentator noted that the implication of Christ increasing and John decreasing was that of stars fading away as the sun rises after the break of day. He said the stars do not really perish or really become less, but they pale and become invisible before the superior brightness of the great center of light. The sun does not really become larger or even increase in brightness. Rather, it becomes more visible and occupies a position in which it more completely fills our vision. And like that, so it was with John the Baptist. He was merely the morning star while Jesus was the sun. Therefore, to declare to his disciples that Christ must increase and he must decrease John the Baptist was putting them on notice that it was only right and proper and necessary that the influence and ministry of Christ should far exceed any influence John himself ever had during all the years he was serving God. Now, how do we apply this personally? 
How do we apply this personally? Very simple. We must be content to be thought less of by our fellow Christians in proportion as they grow in knowledge and faith and see Christ more clearly. Let me say that again. We must be content to be less thought of by our fellow Christians in proportion as they grow in knowledge and faith and see Christ more clearly. In other words, we should never want our fellow Christians to think more of us than they do of Jesus. Instead, we should want to desire that their vision of Christ through the revelation of God's Word increases and maximizes the preeminent position in all their thinking, feeling, talking, and doing. If this is our supreme ambition in all of life, then we are a people who are truly humble. But of course the question remains, do we really demonstrate true humility? How much are we like John the Baptist? Let me give you several questions to ask. Do we live our lives in humble recognition of God's sovereignty over all things? Can we say with John the Baptist, a, cons- a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven? Are such words a mere theory to us or a living experiential reality, a controlling conviction? And then... Do we also live our lives with a humble understanding of who we really are by God's grace and what God has called us to do? Are we content being God's messenger rather than the message itself? Are we satisfied in in being called by God to point everyone around us to Christ rather than having them think that we should be the center of their lives? Then... Do we live our lives by fixing our eyes exclusively on Christ? As I've already raised this question earlier, I'll I'll raise it again. Are we the friends of the bridegroom? Are we the friends of the bridegroom? Is it our greatest ambition and highest joy to promote the interests of Christ so strongly that others will follow after him rather than us? And lastly, do we live our lives wanting nothing more but that the glory of Jesus Christ would increase far above all things. Can we honestly say humbly with John the Baptist? He must increase, but I must decrease. Does Jesus Christ preoccupy Our thoughts, affections, words, and deeds like this. Have we come to that place where we are really content to be less thought of by fellow Christians? Are we, as as we see them, these fellow Christians, growing in greater faith and knowledge and love for Christ? While, While we may want other Christians to see Christ more clearly... How much of our own ego is still clouding and corrupting their desire? The bottom line is this. 
what are we really about? What are we really about? What is the real meaning of our life in this world? What is our prize, our passion, our pursuit? What do we value most? Family, friends, money, career, reputation? If so, you're an idolater. You're an idolater. You're guilty of idolatry. Those are gods and they're false gods. Rather, do we value and cherish the glory of Jesus Christ the most? The spirit of true humility, as we have seen it today in John the Baptist, says this. Yes, I value and cherish the glory of Jesus more than anything because I love him the most and therefore want him to be made most of, not only in my life, but in the lives of others. And to that end, to that end, may God so work in us all this grace of godly humility that is so pleasing in His sight. Indeed, may this be our prayer. Lord, With whomever I am with, let me leave them more with you and less and less with me. I don't want to leave these people with just having more of who I am. That's a terrible thought. I want to leave them with you. Leave them with the Lord. Leave them with your greatness and your glory and your goodness and your grandeur. And let me, let me just fade in the background. That should be the ambition of every single Christian. May God give us the grace to let it so be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful, Lord, for the grace that we have seen today in the example of John the Baptist, even in the example of your servant, George Whitfield. For that sanctifying grace, Lord, that we behold in these fallible, frail, and fallen men is the same sanctifying grace that is in each one of us as your people in Christ. And so, Lord, as as we look and as we behold this godly example of godly humility in your servant, John the Baptist, we know that this is not something that is far out of our reach as your saints. But the same Spirit of God that indwelled John the Baptist is the same Spirit of God that indwells us. And so, blessed Father, we pray. Therefore, for greater sanctification that will grow us and mature us in greater godly humility, 
where, like your servant John, we will be able to say, not in theory, but with a sincere conviction of the heart, wrought by the Holy Spirit, we too shall be able to say that Jesus Christ must increase in our lives and we must decrease. Father, we trust in you for such growth in grace. And we thank you, Lord, that you will answer such a petition because we know this is your will. You command us to put on humility. And we must clothe ourselves in such grace by the power of the Spirit each and every day. Forgive us, we pray, by the blood and righteousness of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, for all our pride and our arrogance and our self-centeredness. We pray, Father, that by the work of the Spirit and the light of your Word, we will pursue a greater mortification of such sin as we pursue a greater growth in what you honor, in what you favor, which is that sweet, sweet grace of Christ-like, Christ-exalting, Christ-honoring humility. We trust in you, Lord, for everything we need, even this very day, to start leaving others with more of you and less of ourselves is our prayer in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.